previously on Murder, Etc. You turn the page and you read narcotics officer shot in head. That one caught me. Within 24 hours of the Lucas being murdered, word on the street is it's Wacky Wakefield. The people thought that, that he was railroaded. And I don't know if that would be true or not, but um, there wasn't a lot of evidence pointed to him. I would think about how they was going to kill me, and I would look out the windows. They had this little brick building, and the guys that served, we call them runarounds. I said, what is that building right there? And then they say, that's the death house. motherless child mm -hmm. a little bit um, yeah, awesome right so these are the words okay. um, it how goes, does, how does it go? sometimes I feel like a motherless child sometimes I feel like a motherless child sometimes I feel like a motherless child, a long way from home. You likely won't see Charles Wakefield as happy and at peace as he was one day in Greenville, South Carolina, when he heard his sister Vanessa sing. True believer, true believer, a long, long way from home. Wakefield sat in a little chair a few feet away, rocking backward and forward, his eyes closed, as far from his childhood, as far from 1975, as far from death row as he'd ever been. He looked as though he wanted the singing to never stop. But when it finally did, he checked on how close the sun was to the horizon, and he got out of Greenville as quickly as he could. I've always found it, I don't know, uh, maybe a little sad, or maybe that's something that when you come to Greenville, you're, you, ne you never really seem comfortable. And No. One day, I visited Wakefield at his home in North Carolina. You know, when you came down a couple of weeks ago, you know, I wanted to sit and have this talk with you there, and it was clear, like, you just didn't, you didn't feel like sticking around. And it's time to go. Yeah. Tell me why. I just, uh... Just as Wakefield started to answer, he heard a police helicopter overhead. Listen to the helicopter. Mm -hmm. They're looking for somebody coming back. They went, then they come back. Yeah. They're looking for somebody. It had been circling for a few minutes, and then it left. Now it was back, and Wakefield's eyes kept cutting from me to a dark sky he couldn't even see through his ceiling. He was nowhere near the city where he was arrested more than four decades earlier and then sent to death row. But in that moment, the look in his eye was the same as that night in Greenville when he realized it was about to get dark outside. I can't even go home in peace because you sit there and you think about it. The slightest little mistake, the slightest little bobble, it can be a tail light out. It can be anything, and they stop you, you know. Uh, let me see your ID. Oh, uh, okay. Are you that Charles Wakefield? You see what I'm saying? If you're afraid they might try to do something. I'm afraid. Wakefield isn't in prison anymore, 
But as far as South Carolina is concerned, he's still a murderer on parole. And that one little mistake he worries about, one little bobble, could send him back to prison for the rest of his life. He is 65 years old and afraid of the dark in Greenville. I used to spend the night. I don't spend the night no more. I got to the point I was sort of kind of relaxing a little bit, sort of comfortable a little bit, but it just seemed like in my heart and my spirit, my heart is, is, is not to be there. Wakefield called Greenville, South Carolina home for most of his two decades on earth. Now as a parolee, he lives in North Carolina. Under the law, he could have lived at home, but afraid of the law, he can barely stand to drive into town on Interstate 385. Going north, 385 spills into Greenville's nationally celebrated downtown, and one of the first things that drivers see is the Greenville County Courthouse. 43 years ago, as Wakefield left that courthouse, he faced south out of Greenville on a 100-mile ride to South Carolina's death row. I go to see my family. I go to take care of my business. But before it's dark, I'm out of Greenville. I'm out. I don't, I don't hang around at night down there. The sunset rule. Don't let the sun set on your back here. I, I got the sunset rule. When it starts, gets to be a certain time in the evening time, I'm out. Knowing where Wakefield spent that time, 90 minutes south of Greenville, it's not surprising he doesn't have much interest in returning to the place where his life unraveled. But when you hear the rest of his story, you realize there's a sad irony in Wakefield running away from home. Because when he was barely old enough to talk, home ran away from him. Mother and father were separated when I think I was about four years old. I have three sisters and one brother. All of a sudden, they were gone. I was wondering where they had gone. I guess because I was so young, I didn't understand, but the only thing that I knew that they, they wasn't there no more. For years, his family had been like a picture in a frame, hung on a wall, something he could see every day. And then a blink, that picture disappeared, leaving just the glass and a black slate behind it, like a mirror. In his reflection, Wakefield saw a little boy who lost most of his family and now lived with a stepsister, a stepmother, and an alcoholic father. I remember uh, him not, sometimes him not paying the bills like he should and not taking care of the house like he should, but that was my father and I loved him. Had stepmom, and I think she was sort of resentful for having to take care of another woman's child. As a child, Wakefield turned quiet. He became a loner. He felt like an outsider, even when sitting at the family dinner table. A feeling that sometimes manifested itself literally when he'd take his meals out to the porch, where he felt more comfortable. He would try to picture a mother who had not only escaped her marriage, but also escaped to the very edges of her young son's memory. The moment that I remember her was that when I fell down the steps and I got, the, I got a scar right here, I bumped my head and that's, that's the only recollection that I have of her when I was a child. Wakefield can still point to the visible scar he got on the day his mother picked him up from the bottom of the steps, but he still can't quite put his finger on the scars his heart's worn for six decades the ones he got the day his mom left him behind. And even to the point where when I was young, I didn't have 
uh, a visual memory of her. I didn't have an image, image in my mind that she looked the way or she looked that way. The only image I had in my mind was sort of like a blur. For Wakefield, dealing with the memories is a lot like shadow boxing. He gets better and stronger as he goes, but he never actually hits anything. It's hard to reckon with something you can barely remember. A lot of my childhood was spent thinking about my, my sisters and my brother and thinking about my mom and trying to understand why would she leave me and take the rest of it. When Wakefield remembers taking his meals out to the porch, his eyes get wet, and he'll sometimes quickly brush at his cheekbone just below his eyes. But those same eyes light up when he talks about sitting in the shade under that porch, playing with his toy trucks, and listening for his daddy's voice to call out from underneath the hood of his car. And I had been out there with him so, so much until I knew what wrenches. If he say he needed a certain wrench or a certain screwdriver or a certain ratchet, whatever he needed, he would tell me and I would go get it. And he would tell me, boy, bring me a 916. It's rare to hear a story about Charles Wakefield's father, the one with whom he shared a name, and not hear some mention of the older Wakefield's drinking problem. Charles Wakefield Jr. looked past his dad's troubles. After all, his father was still at home with him, and when his father left the house, he'd take his son with him. He was a fisherman and a hunter, and he would hunt rabbits and squirrels and stuff, and before the season, he would take the dogs out and run them and train them. Those are happy memories from West Greenville, a place Wakefield remembers as a community with a split personality, one full of good people with good intentions and a good relationship with God, but also a place full of drugs, thieves, and sin, a place where illegal bars, known around town as liquor houses, were sometimes family establishments. And he would take me to the liquor house with him, you know, and I would be sitting on top of the table eating pork skins and... Drinking, uh, back then they had the little short mini uh, Cokes. And I sat there, you know, eat pork skins and drank the little Coke. Wakefield talks about what he ate and drank with a noticeable joy. To most Southerners, pork skins and Coke are simply staples of their childhood. To Wakefield, they're touchstones. Not to Southern snacks, not even to his childhood, but to time. Time his father spent with him. That time just happened to tick by inside an illegal liquor house while he served as his daddy's wingman. The women come by, oh, you're so cute. You look just like your daddy, you know? And I'm like looking at them. Then they'd stick a quarter in my pocket, you know? Back then, a quarter was a whole lot of money. And they'd stick the little quarter in my pocket, you know? And uh, we would hang out. When compared to the low point of his mom leaving him behind, Wakefield counts that time playing the child's sidekick to an alcoholic father as one of the good memories from his childhood. I mean, I think that my, my best times was, you know, my little moments that, uh, that I spent with him. You know, it's, it's interesting because you know, I think, I mean, we've talked about him quite a bit and you know, he obviously had his issues, but at the same time, you revere him. Like you look back, you look back on that right. time and you were, um, you know, a lot of people might say, well, Man, he was taking his kid to bars. I mean, what kind of guy was this? And taking his kid to the liquor house. And you smile every time you talk about it. I mean, that's how he was. But that, that, that was my daddy. And I knew 
that he loved me. But ask Wakefield about the warmest memories of his childhood, and he will always tell you about a little house just across the street from his elementary school where his grandparents lived. He held a special affection for his grandfather. We were so close every day. It wasn't a day that passed that I didn't see him. Every day, like clockwork, I was over to see granddaddy, over to see granddaddy, over to see granddaddy, over to see granddaddy. I was his, his favorite son, you know, and we were, we were tight. Like I said, I know all his little secrets, you know, because I was there and, and I kept all his secrets. I know all his secrets. What was his name? Benjamin. But uh, they call him uh, uh, traditional name, uh, Big Daddy and Big Mama. <laughs> That's what they call him, Big Daddy and Big Mama. Big Daddy and Big Mama did not run away like Wakefield's mother and they spent more time praying at church than they did propped up at an illegal liquor house. They were very uh, spiritual people. My grandfather was a, a deacon in the church. He was real stable. He was, you know, one of the nicest people that you, you know, you, you ever want to meet. That little house was a sanctuary for Wakefield, a rare refuge where he could exhale. Your lights wasn't getting cut off. Your water wasn't getting cut off. You had food. You didn't, you didn't worry about food because they, they always had food. When Wakefield ran up to the front porch, his grandmother would hop into the kitchen and start cooking for him. And in the meantime, the young Wakefield would head out to the backyard for an appetizer. I remember in the back of his house, uh, they had a fence. And uh, the people next door had this great big old cherry tree with these great big old big cherries. And, you know, the branches would come into my grandfather's yard and I would get all I can get. 35 years in a cage can steal a lot from a man's memory. Wakefield managed to hide his most important memories in everyday things a thief would overlook. There are those cherry trees at his grandparents, the plum tree beside his parents' house, the pickle on the blue plate special on Washington Street, the coffee at a diner called Boston Lunch. They're like those pork skins and little Cokes. Like an old man hiding his cash in a coffee can, Wakefield hides his memories in things Southerners see every day. Memories good and bad. Memories he would unwrap and reveal one at a time. Like the day his grandmother, his big mama, died. And back then, it was crazy. Back then, they would have the weight in your house where they would, they would bring the body for the people to view it. They would view it at the funeral home if you asked them to, but a lot of what they was doing, they was bringing, I guess they was bringing the body back home for the last time. And I remember in the, in the living room of my grandmom's house, you know, when uh, she had passed away, seeing her, you know, like that. No matter how much Wakefield wants to forever remember his grandmother cooking him something to fill his belly, his lasting memory? The day his only refuge turned into a funeral parlor. And the closest thing he knew to a mother like cold in her own home. With his grandmother gone, Wakefield doubled down on his time with his grandfather, his big daddy, Benjamin. Each day, he ran from West Greenville Elementary School to his grandfather's house, oblivious to the pattern forming in his life 
the people he cherished disappearing again and again. I was coming over to see my granddaddy, and the ambulance was in front of the house. And I said, what is the ambulance doing in front of this house? And then I walked in this house, and they had him on the stretcher in, uh, in his bedroom. And uh, he was laying on the stretcher, and blood was coming out of his nose and everything. And uh, he had had a, a massive heart attack. He, uh, he died. He died in this house. Charles Wakefield does not complain about his life. I asked him once if he thought God had forsaken him, and he was quick to say he never thought that, not even once. Even when he was looking through bars at a freedom he couldn't taste, he prayed to a God he was sure was listening. This, in a way, explains Charles Wakefield's optimism. The day his mother finally came back home, more than a decade after she left, to get her divorce papers signed. It's a beautiful woman and a very intelligent woman. When she came up, my daddy signed the papers. He didn't resist anything. And that was the first time that I had seen her in about 13 years. It was the end of the Wakefield marriage, but one of the children it produced, Charles Wakefield Jr., saw it as an opportunity for a beginning. And like I say, when I seen her again, I was 16. I was ecstatic because I had sat around, you know, for all them years wondering about her, you know, how does she look, you know, what kind of person she was. I was... Um, at the time, working at a drive-in. So I cooked them a couple of meals. Um, I cooked them breakfast, and then I cooked them another meal. And uh, I said, well, can I uh, come and visit my other siblings and everything? So they left, and then a couple of weeks later, I say, uh, she agreed to it. It had been more than a decade since the day Wakefield's mother had picked him up from his fall down a flight of steps and taken care of him. And finally, she welcomed him into her home in Florida. Uh, I was there for a couple of weeks, and she called me in uh, to a bedroom. And I went in there. She said, I want to talk to you. I said, okay. She said, you're going to have to go, go back home to your father. I said, okay. And uh, I left, never to, never to see her again. That was the last time that I saw her. Did she say why? That's, that's all she said. She said, you got to go back home to your father. Wakefield once sat on death row. He spent 35 years in prison for a crime he says he didn't commit. And yet, he counts the day his mom sent him away the final time as one of the lowest points in his life. If, if your mother and father don't, don't want you, then nobody does. If they don't want you, your family don't want you. If your family don't want to deal with you, if your family don't want to interact with you, then... Nobody does. It was one of Wakefield's lowest points, and he'd say, a turning point. Charles Wakefield went back to Greenville, South Carolina. People would call it his home, but to call it that would ignore the fact that nearly everything that had made it his home had somehow evaporated in front of him. His mother, his siblings, his grandparents. 
It left him with just his father, a struggling alcoholic, who didn't care that his son was dropping out of school, who couldn't even work up the energy to whip his son into shape. He didn't beat me, and he didn't, he didn't discipline me because my mother had uh, taken the rest of the kids. I'm thinking that because I was with him and I was Charles Jr., I guess he had this love for me where he couldn't beat me. Because I remember the one time that he tried and it was so half-hearted and I was looking at him like, are you really going to beat me? And he made an attempt at it, but I guess the love that he had for me, it wasn't in his heart to, uh, to beat me. But, you know, looking back on it, you know, I sort of wish that uh, he had. And that is how Charles Wakefield Jr. headed toward adulthood. He didn't graduate from high school. He didn't have a mother at home to love him or the grandparents who had given him a sanctuary. He ended up with a father that he would later wish had found the strength to beat him. Where does a young man go from there? In Greenville, a lot of men might have tried to weave their way into one of the local gangs. Wakefield went to a mill. At the time, Greenville, South Carolina was considered the textile capital of the world. I was working at Punset Mill. You had to be 16 to work, and I think I was a little past 15, because I lied a little bit. Because I wasn't doing nothing. I had quit school. I quit school in the eighth grade, so I wasn't doing anything. So I decided I'd go over there and try to work. No one has ever said that happiness doesn't take work. And Wakefield soon found that going to work could lead him to a kind of happiness he didn't know was possible. And I was working second shift, and she was working third shift. She'd be coming in, and I'd be going out. I said, that's a cute girl right there. I started uh, talking to her. I said, Kenny, can I take you out? Can I take you to the movies or something? And then she finally said, yeah. Her name was Mary Ann, and Wakefield took a shine to her in a way that he had not yet known. He took her to the movies, and then he took her everywhere he could. Her daddy, she was the baby in the family. Her daddy wasn't too enthusiastic about that. I don't know whether or not he was just that protective, or, but he, didn't, he did not want me to mess with her. But the funny thing about it is when you don't want something to happen, it's definitely going to be happening. <laughs> it happened, and it happened quickly. Before long, Wakefield was proposing marriage to a woman that he alone knew was the secret to a different life. My family didn't want, didn't want me to marry her. They said I was too young, but I seen it as a way to get away and a change because I had needed to get away and I had needed a change. That time in my life, I was starting to not like the way that I was living and I wanted to change and I was trying to figure out different ways to change because the way that I was living wasn't, wasn't really going anywhere. They moved to Baltimore together, but when Charles and his wife discovered they'd soon be parents, Mary Ann decided she wanted to be back home in Greenville. Reluctant, but in love, Wakefield agreed. He was just months into a new life of happiness, and he went back to Greenville. It wasn't long before one of his cousins showed up on a Friday night wanting Charles to go out on the town. 
He went outside. I was inside with Marianne. Marianne said, I don't want you to go. She said, I want you to stay here with me. I told her, I'm going to go ahead. After that, her feelings changed. She changed. I guess she figured that other things and other people were more, more important than her. And she said, hell with it. Young, immature, a new father. Wakefield took the only stabilizing force in his life and traded it for a Friday night of drinking beers with his cousin. And looking back, Wakefield isn't the least bit surprised that his decision led to the end of his marriage. Did you blame her or did you blame yourself? I knew, I knew what it was. It was my fault. It was my fault. I could have did, I could have did better. You know, it was sort of like my daddy. You know, I was being just like my daddy. Having responsibilities and not being responsible. Putting her where I should have put her in terms of supporting her and taking care of her. Because I had made a promise. I didn't get keep my promise. Charles and Marianne Wakefield stopped living together as husband and wife. And Wakefield kept going out on the town. After his marriage fell apart, Charles Wakefield was in the wind. No parents or grandparents to guide him. No wife or child to keep him straight. No personal compass quick enough to point him in the right direction. After that, he ended up on death row. If that seems like a massive and disconnected leap to you, it seems that way to Charles Wakefield too. Even today, 44 years later, he doesn't know exactly how it all happened. He only knows that it did and that he has a story to tell the people of Greenville, South Carolina. A story about how a young black man in Greenville, South Carolina was convicted of a crime without uh, any evidence. And I want them to hear how a person that was getting ready to go into the Marine Corps, tired of just hanging around Greenville wanting to straighten his life out and come up with a better way of life for his young family. You know, I want them to hear about how, you know, a person lost their wife, a relationship, I only had one child, my daughter, and the relationship is damaged to the point. Even now, you know, it's a struggle just to have a normal relationship with her. There are lots of things Charles Wakefield thinks about now, lots of stories he wants the world to know. But the part he can't get over is this. Before he went away, he lost almost everything he loved. And while he was behind bars, he lost the rest. I was down there in prison and half of my family died. And I didn't have an opportunity to, to, to say goodbye. Charles Wakefield has an aunt who is 86 years old. She lives in an assisted living facility in Greenville. Back in 1975, she was my age, and she still remembers it like it was last week. Annie Jones can tell you whatever you want to know, from Charles Wakefield as a child to Charles Wakefield as a death row inmate. But she has a hard time articulating her feelings about his future. If you had a wish um, that you could have right now for Charles, what would you wish? <clears throat> I wish he could get off the road and you know, get, live a normal life like everybody else. Huh? But so <clears throat> Because, you know, it's hard to do it at time for something you didn't do. If you didn't catch all of that, it's okay. Annie's accent is sometimes hard to understand. She said she wants him off parole. 
because it's hard to do all that time for something that you didn't do. That's what it is. Yeah. I'm sorry. This conversation was almost impossible for Annie Jones to handle, but she insisted we push through. Her ongoing grief makes this difficult to understand, but I'm just going to let it play so you can hear it as I did. Oh my gosh, he, uh, he never... Wait a minute. I'm okay. okay. He never got to enjoy a, a, a child life, you know, a young guy life. He was gone for something he didn't do. And, and, that, and, and, he, and, he, and they knew it too. But that's that thing that bothered me so bad. Okay, I'm all right now, but uh, they, they knew they was telling lies, but he, he never got to enjoy a uh, young life, you know, with the people his age. I never, never, he was always in jail, you know. <clears throat> and then uh, he couldn't really be with his family or nothing. People, people die. His mama died while he was in there. Daddy died. Never, and they, he couldn't come. And he never got to come to a funeral. Neither one of the funeral. Of all the things that have broken her heart over the years, Annie still chokes up about the fact Charles Wakefield never got to say goodbye to the people he loved. And of all the people who died, Charles Wakefield came the closest to saying goodbye to his father. Sometimes I feel like a motherless child. Vanessa, Charles' sister, is the one you heard singing earlier. And among the Wakefield family, she is the one who has stuck by him more than anyone. She spent her father's dying days helping her dad deal with his own regret. My dad was a drinker, and after that, he drank. He seemed to drink more. He took it really hard. He felt like, you know, there was, you know, he should have been able to do something to protect him more. And he, he really felt guilty about it up until the time he passed. You know, we talked a lot, and he. He felt really bad about it, and I think it hurt him that he he was dying and knowing that he would never see Charles outside of the prison walls. Nevertheless, Charles Wakefield said, that father who never pushed him hard to go to school when he was a kid, well, that man took pride in his son's years of studies and accomplishments behind bars. As a father, Charles Wakefield Sr. fought for his son's freedom, and he almost lived long enough to see that fight pay off. Eight months after my father passed away, I was released from prison, and it was devastating to me that uh, he passed away. And if he had just held on for eight more months, he would have actually seen me, you know, be free again. And he wanted so much for me to be free. As a teenager, Wakefield hoped his mother's heart might change, that she might take him back. And she didn't. And yet Wakefield's hope in the goodness of people remains. For a very long time, he felt like Greenville was a city that abandoned him. And today, he believes there are still people in Greenville who know a story different than what his jury heard. And he prays the people who know that other story will tell it. You hope that it's it's an opportunity for people to tell the truth. And maybe, you know, there's people
people that will say how wrong this is and try to try to help. I guess that's that's at least what I'm what I'm hoping for. I think that God has a hand in it. It needs to be an end. Forty-four years. That's totally an, another lifetime. There are people who have said, and certainly more people who will say, Charles, you're out of prison. You have a place to live, a job. What else could you possibly hope for? And Wakefield will answer, the truth. So, Wakefield doesn't stop. His family worries about him. They think the more Wakefield pushes, the more danger he's in. His cousin, Manny Nix, put it plainly. They might try to come and lock him back up. He's putting himself in the position of truth. They might come and lock him back up. I don't think he would have pursued this. If he were guilty, there would be no reason. If you are guilty and you out, there's no reason to subject yourself to any more scrutiny because you done the time. If you are innocent, you done the time. But you ain't you ain't free in yourself knowing that this is this is not the truth. He putting himself back out there. They might like him back up. Charles Wakefield refuses to think about that. And if he needs to keep it out of his mind, he has help. Sometimes I feel like a motherless child. Late one afternoon, we met up with his sister Vanessa and a Wakefield family friend, a preacher named Harry Mansell. Wakefield wanted to hear them sing together. Sometimes I feel Their singing transformed Charles Wakefield that afternoon. The nervous, uncomfortable ex-con, the black man put away by two white cops and an all-white jury, looked uncharacteristically happy and relaxed. A long way from home. The harmony spoke to him, if only for a couple of minutes. It calmed him, like the much longer conversations he had with God. I prayed about it and I prayed about it. And God told me that in order for you to be free, you got to forgive people. He told me that it wasn't white people that put you in prison. It was a group of people. But that group of people, why did they put an innocent person in prison? This horrible thing, they had basically trashed my life. They, they ruined my life. They ruined my life even to, to this point in, in, in 2019. I'm still paying, paying a price for what they did in 1975. I'm still paying this horrible price. But I still, I still had to genuinely forgive them in order for me to, to continue to grow, to be the man that God, God wants me to be and the man that my family need me to be. And I understood that I couldn't go around uh, hating people, even though even though they did what they did. And um, that was hard. In 1975, investigators, a prosecutor, and a jury declared Charles Wakefield a murderer. 
And no matter how much he proclaimed his innocence over four decades, no matter how much he proclaims his innocence today, Charles Wakefield is, under South Carolina law, a murderer, a double murderer, a cop killer. And as long as the law, Greenville, and the state of South Carolina continue to call him a murderer, Charles Wakefield has a promise to keep. I promised God that I wasn't going to stop until he tell me to stop. I wasn't going to stop trying to prove my innocence. I didn't commit this crime. Everybody know that I didn't commit this crime. I'm going to do whatever it is I got to do. I'll stop pursuing it when God tell me to stop. Yes, a long way from home. Thanks very much to Vanessa McKinney and the Reverend Harry Mansell for allowing us to record them singing together and use their voice here in this episode. If you'd like to see pictures of them or any other people you've heard speak in this episode, head over to our website. Over the past few weeks, we've updated the site with lots of pictures, stories, and extra material you can't get here on the podcast. You can find it all on murderetcpodcast.com. That's murderetcpodcast.com. And as always, if you haven't taken five minutes to subscribe and both rate and review Murder, etc., please know that all three of those things are the most important ways you could help us keep this podcast going. And if you have a few extra minutes, share this episode with your friends on Facebook and Twitter. Next time on Murder, etc., you will meet one of the most important characters in this entire story. And that character is the city of Greenville, South Carolina, a pretty city that has as dark a backstory as the gangsters it produced. Our downtown has a polluted river, which we all love. Our statues, we have statues of the rats that caused the Black Plague. And our other famous statue is a guy who threw the World Series. We're not a nice town. Hashtag, yeah, that other Greenville. On the next Murder, Etc. 